April 22nd, May 13th, June 3rd, June 24th. These dates ringing any bells? Well, they might if you're an Ontario angler because these dates are all the different fishy openers we have across the province. Of course, these dates may vary depending on where you are in the province, but here in Southern Ontario, these dates are celebrated across all tying tables. With these dates fast approaching, Drift Outfitters and Fly Shop in downtown Toronto is the place to go to get ready for trout, walleye, pike, muskie, bass of the small and largemouth variety. Yes, Drift Outfitters has you totally covered for all your upcoming fishing needs. Stop by the store to chat with the experts themselves and learn how to catch the fish you're after. Or shop online at driftoutfitters.com and enjoy coast-to-coast-to-coast -to -coast -to -coast shipping on all the best products. Find them at 199 Queen Street East in Toronto or online at driftoutfitters.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of SoFly. It is uh, the end of March and we're recording another episode. Very excited to be back here doing another show. Of course, we've got myself, Mitch. We've got Yelma. Hello, everyone. And we've got Idis. Hello. And Aldo can't be with us today because he has got other work things that came up. And so he's he's out working right now, even though it's 7 o'clock. Does he ever stop, Yelma? No. So he's going, he, isn't he? Four, four letters. Y-E-E-T. <laughs> Yeet. <laughs> Yeet. Yeah, okay. Well, rock and roll, Yama. Um We are very excited to be finally recording a show with somebody we've been trying to get on the show for a little while now. And finally, our schedule's all lined up. We're super excited to be chatting with Matt Schilling, who's the executive director of IndieFly, uh, a nonprofit organization committed to serving indigenous communities, who are stewards of 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity. Uh, he's by far the worst fly angler of the group, uh, or so he says. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, but he's passionate about conservation and sustainable livelihoods. Um, Schilling has got experience in both the private and public sectors, having served in government uh, as an advisor, executive, and board member of companies, nonprofit organizations. Super excited to be chatting with him today. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Honored to be here. You know, that intro is always my least favorite part of this whole thing. <laughs> yeah, how uh, come? <laughs> but uh, oh, I don't know. Um, you know, I take these... Uh, self-assessments thing things when we add people to the team and uh i mm -hmm. always have the lowest score being self-promotion so um <laughs> i just hate hearing about myself i also hate hearing my voice so yeah um, uh, uh, <laughs> great to be on the podcast then yeah it's <laughs> <laughs> a perfect place for you um no yeah. i hear you man I, I, f I feel like we've talked about this too we feel the same way it's always weird like hearing about the cool stuff you do but like you know you do cool stuff well thanks yeah um yeah happy to be here to talk about it yeah stoked um, so where are Betsy calling him from today? I am in, uh, lovely St. Paul, Minnesota, Beautiful. um, where it, uh, is what, uh, you know, the end of March and we're going to get a few inches of snow later <sighs> this week. So, um, spring is, uh, not exactly sprung here <laughs> has not exactly sprung, but we're getting closer. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, you guys have, may relate to this, mm -hmm. uh, being from Canada, but it took me a few years to acclimate to the cold. But man, the darkness is a real thing. The darkness, um, yeah. for know, real, it, it is it brutal is. still. So oh, yeah. we're it getting better every day, though. Me, man. Like honestly, like the I mean, uh, these guys have heard it. I've been 
bitching about it for the last month. I'm just like, <laughs> get me out of this weather. Like, it's dark nights and the, yeah. just, you know, short days. It's like, uh, really, like, March hits, it's like, okay, enough. Let's get this yeah. going, you know. Well, it's nice. Yeah. It's lighter and longer now. Yeah, now it's like, yeah, at least there's that. Uh, so where'd you grow up then? You said you moved to Minnesota. Where'd you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in Indiana, um, nice. actually, and I, I was listening to a podcast earlier um, with Joe Gino from Costa, yeah, who oh, right brought on. up the name Hayden Dobbins, and I don't know if you guys actually know him or just know of him, um, but he and I grew up in neighboring towns. Okay, um, he's much younger than I am, yeah. but uh, small world there, and uh, you know, I, I moved out. Uh, you know, as quickly as I could, basically. So when, when I went to college and then uh, I spent most of my adult life in D.C., we moved here uh, almost nine years ago. So the Midwest wasn't really a place for you. Uh, it is. Uh, here I am. Yeah. Um, well, I guess but, Indiana specifically, yeah. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. I always thought I wanted to go. I grew up in a really small town. I always thought I would find myself in, in a town like that. Yeah. Um, but wasn't quite ready. And then uh, lived in a big city for a while and realized I could never go back to a small town. Yeah, uh, yeah. Great place to visit. Yeah. But, you know. I get you. Yeah, I think we've, we kind of all feel the same. I mean, we're in Toronto, so we bond over crappy winters and, uh, yeah, and the, the love to be in a more bumping place, you know? Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, I feel that. Um, okay, so before we, maybe, like, talk about IndieFly and, and, like, all the great work that IndieFly does, why don't we just jump into, you know, your starting of your life fishing outdoors like how did that stuff kick off yeah so uh spent a ton of time outdoors as, as a kid um you know i have these very vivid memories of fishing a pond with my grandmother actually mm-hmm. um when i was really really young um with you know a cane pole and then um you know st- really the fly fishing component started later than probably most of your guests for me in life which was uh man, probably like 2008. Um, you know, I, I met a group of guys in DC who loved to fly fish. And, uh, at that time, you know, the urban fishing thing was becoming bigger. Um, you know, that's, uh, you know, towards the front end of the, the carp fishery. Um, and so, you know, we just go out on the Potomac and spend a day. Uh, you know, I did a lot of watching and learning and then, um, about a year later, um, I started spending a bunch of time out West and I had a couple of buddies who lived in Utah and those two really taught me the ins and out of trout fishing. Um, and then, you know, I, I kind of did probably the opposite of what is smart and started, uh, saltwater fishing probably a little too early <laughs> and, um, okay. you know, learned, learned all the mistakes there as well. So, uh, you know, I, sure. I always joke and say I'm the worst flying of the group, which I think there is some truth in, um, but, you know, I, I go on these trips and I'm always with people who um, do it for a living or have done right. it for uh, many more years than I have. And part of what I love about the sport is, man, you just will never be a master of everything. There's always yeah. something to learn. And so, um, you know, that to me is very intriguing about the sport and also very humbling. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's a really good point. Like you have people that are like dialed at one specific way of fishing you know and it's like so niche and then you take those people to say the salt if they're like dry trout fishing fish anglers you know and they just can't they just don't know what the heck they're doing you know so it's like true yeah there are like these nuances and niches to it all and chapters i mean we have you know although he likes to say this is his salt years you know i'm sure 
after that's done, he's going to do, oh, you know, this, these are my dry fly years or my bamboo years or, you know, he'll switch it up. But that's like what you were saying. You know, you're always progressing, learning, you know, Airs of the fly fishing life. Yeah. 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 I dig it. Um, do you remember what your first fish on the fly rod was? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, a brown trout. Um, you know, at nice. the time I, I thought it was a very large brown trout. It probably was not. Um, yeah. you know, I, I don't think. <laughs> I'm sure there's a picture somewhere. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do remember the rush though. And, uh, you know, at mm. that point I was pun intended, I guess, hooked. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's just to me, the technical aspect of the sport, um, is super appealing. Um, you know, obviously different, uh, salt, freshwater, wh- wherever you go. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, the multifaceted approach to, the sport i think is something that's appealing to obviously more and more people every day yeah for sure yeah it is blowing up like fly fishing is becoming like you see it everywhere you know like it maybe was niche at one point but it's like certainly doesn't feel like it's niche anymore maybe that's just because we're all really big part like really deep into it but well and i think what, what what you're seeing is um the perceived barrier to entry is changing, right? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. it used to be back in the day when, uh, you know, it was largely thought of as an upper class sport. Yeah. Um, that, you know, you have to buy a $900 rod and a $900 reel and boots and waders and all these things. Yeah. Um, and now the industry has done such a good job of making it accessible to mm-hmm. um, more and more people. And so it, it's fun to watch it grow, man. Um, you know, one of the things I'm obviously a big conservation guy, yeah. uh, you know, I have yet to find a fly angler who, um, you know, <laughs> doesn't care about the resource in which they're utilizing. Yeah. And so it's, uh, you know, when you talk about sustainable use of resources, it's hard to find a better sport. Yeah. No, a good point. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good point. Good. Yeah. Fly fishing does attract like a really interesting kind of person to it, you know, like, uh, and it does foster like communities that do great things you know and i feel like um maybe indie fly is, is one of those so why don't we talk a little bit about indie fly. good segue what is sure. indie fly you guys are good at this look at that segue <laughs> <laughs> it's quite the segue we got there <laughs> yeah so um you know kind of as mentioned in the in the intro we're a nonprofit. Um, you know, we kind of bill ourselves as this community first nonprofit. Yeah. We give indigenous peoples an enterprise based framework, um, you know, for the creation of livelihoods. And what, what we're really doing there is we, um, you know, when you go into a community, and I'll talk later about why indigenous, right? Um, why we focus on those communities. But when you go into a community and, um, you know, you tell them, hey, you know, here's whatever it is. Here's some stuff, here's some money, here's some whatever. Um, You know, you should do conservation. Um, You know, that doesn't always uh, create the long-term generational approach to sustainability that we need. And so what we help people do is um, create 100% community-owned and operated fly fishing ecotourism lodges. And so those lodges kind of serve as, I I liken it to a hub and spoke model. So those lodges serve as the hub, if you will. That's where um, community members become employed through. That's where visitors go to immerse in cultures. That's where, um, you know, the large economic driver of what we do is. 
But what's really cool about the model is it <clears throat> affords all these little other smaller scale entrepreneurial activities around it that are the spokes, if you will, that um, are really unique businesses that community members can stand up outside of that hub. Um, think about things like shuttle companies or, yeah. um, you know, largely this is a Western and European um, destination in, in almost all of our projects with the exception of one, I guess. Um, you know, my point is the diet is different, right? Um, people generally want eggs for breakfast. Well, in a lot of these communities, there's no chickens. So somebody buys chickens and starts laying eggs and sells them back to the lodge. And, um, you know, those are just a couple of examples, but there's a whole hospitality side and, you know, all, all groundskeeping and all of that. So the point is, you know, what, what we're trying to do here is kind of work across these three pillars of sustainability. That would be the economic one, right? Um, how do you provide an economic incentive for these vital stewards of resources to protect their lands and yep. waters and wildlife? Um, you know, we also have two other pillars um, that I'll just briefly talk about, which is cultural um, is one of them. So, uh, in a lot of the places that we work, um, especially here in North America, um, you know, people are struggling, communities are struggling on how to retain that culture, um, and ensure that it's passed down. And so we can help develop programs in which, um, that culture, um, remains uh because it's important uh, part of a business right um you know you guys all travel the world you know generally what i find when people go to a cool new place it's and do it often it's not necessarily coming back and telling the stories to their family at the dinner table or their buddies at the bar of you know i caught x number of fish that were this size it's generally I went to this really cool place, met these really cool people, and now I have a totally different perspective in my day-to-day -day life. Yeah. And you know that immersing in a culture can be a really good business decision for the community. Um, you know, obviously, it's super important that that culture is passed on as well. And so, um, you know, we do a lot of youth engagement efforts around that. Um, but I want to be clear. I'm, I'm a white guy from the United States, right? Um, you know, we're not going in and teaching culture. Yeah. We're, um, you know, placing an emphasis on the, important of the importance of that culture. Yeah. Um, the, then the third pillar of sustainability, which, you know, we always say we stand on these three pillars of sustainability is environmental. Um, you know, the uh, we talked briefly about the fly fishing community being one of very little impact to a resource, um, you know, the flip side of that is there is a certain amount of pressure that a fishery can can um, withhold or withstand. Yep. And, you know, in many of these communities that we work in, uh, you know, that's their their subsistence source. You know, that's what they feed their families with. And the last thing that we would want to do is invite people from the outside um, and apply totally, additional yeah. pressure and you know the fishery not be sustainable and so uh or not allow for that pressure or be able to handle that pressure so um you know everything we do is rooted in in science and we base all the decisions on science um and so you know typically at the beginning of every project and everyone's very different we'll send a science team in as step one and say all right you know what is the actual um current and projected um capacity of this fishery mm -hmm. 
what a unique yeah. business yeah. Wow. like model like i honestly like haven't heard of something like this before like yeah but is, is there other like besides fly fishing like does this type of thing exist for like say hiking or like other activity tourist based like, like outdoor tourist activities more and more so yeah, yeah. um you know and, and look i think indie flies organization we uh use fly fishing for a few reasons you know i think that I'm, I'm assuming most of your audience are fly anglers, but for those who aren't, you know, people listening to the show may ask themselves, look, you know, these guys clearly like fly fishing, but is it really a viable solution? Um, and mm-hmm. the fact is it's, it's, it's a proven model, right? Um, you know, it's familiar. A lot of the communities that we go into um, fish every day. Um, it's a different type of fishing, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they may be bow fishing, they may be using nets, they may be using hand lines, um, you know, uh, but we just simply expand on that local knowledge of the resource and introduce a new tool, which drives tourism, which provides jobs and, you know, some economic incentive Smart. to do conservation again. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, look, the, the other side of that is when you walk into a community and say, um, you know, we're going to teach you how to catch fish in the most inefficient way possible. <laughs> and people are going to come down here and um, lift, hopefully keep them in the water, but take a picture with them yeah. and let them go. Yeah. Um, you know, they think you're a little bit crazy. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of entertainment derived from that. I'm sure at our <laughs> expense locally, but, um, you know, the point is, is that, uh, you know, they are experts in the resource, um, most often. And we just, you know, introduce a, a different tool. Uh, you know, it's sustainable. We've kind of already touched on that. Uh, all these things are, are, all of our projects are catch and release. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what is the really interesting shift to see there is, um, you know, the, the realization from communities that that fish is now, it means something more in the water than it does out of the water. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's yeah, some the really educational cool aspect. Are, Sorry. To exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's some real, no, no, no. There's some really cool stories about, you know, um, take our first project was, um, in Guyana, Amazon basin, middle of the rainforest, a little village of almost 300 people. Um, you know, they have a very special fish called the arapaima. Um, you know, typically what happens in that resource is uh, they have a rainy season and a dry season. Uh, during the um, rainy season to dry season, the water changes 40 feet. Um, it's very significant. So wow. the fish live in the rivers, um, jungle floods, the fish the water recedes the fish actually get trapped in these ponds and then during the dry season you can go target these fish um well there was a couple years back there was like a three year three season cycle where they just didn't receive a lot of rain and so what happens i mean it's hot down there right evaporation's a thing um you know the jungle sucks up the water some of it goes in the air but point being uh you know, these fish were becoming exposed to predation. Um, you know, I always liken this place to uh, like a Disney movie, you know, there's lots of big birds, um, there's lots of big cats, generally everything wants to kill you, um, big snakes. And so, you know, they, they all can now see this fish. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the fear is, is that that fish is going to become, uh, you know, dead. And so, you know, without 
any encouragement from anyone, what these villagers did was they took these very heavy hand dugout canoes, um, filled them with water from the river, drug them through the jungle, put the fish in, in, in the canoe and drug them back out and put them in the river so the fish would survive. Right. Um, you know, previously that fish is very large and would feed a lot of people, you know, they would Mm -hmm. likely just let the thing die and and then eat it. Um, but it's stories like that. Right. Um, and, uh, so that, you know, this is, it's sustainable part is, you know, um, the, the, it just like the whole thing instills the, instills this conservation ethic or helps, helps people get to this conservation ethic, which, um, you know, many, uh, examples of, you know, anglers going down and trying to, um, you know, they, they always talk about why they release the fish, um, and the importance of that fish to the greater ecosystem and all those things. But anyway, the point is it's sustainable and that's why it works. And then, you know, look, it can also be lucrative. Um, you know, you guys all travel the world and you spend some money, um, you know, done right. Ecotourism operations can drastically improve a community's, uh, economic bottom line. Um, you know, and, uh, that really is, is one of the things that we, we try to focus on too, is, you know, what is this model that can result in the creation of a sustainable livelihoods, um, which, you know, allows for these communities to reinvest in themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, at the end of the day, what these businesses do is, you know, they cr- generate these community-wide benefits. Um, you know, they create incentives for the protection of the homeland. Um, they allow right. for pe- people to be employed so they don't have to leave the village um, or the yeah. place and go find work. Um, you know, so it, it's it's just this really cool story of reinvestment as well. Yeah, I mean, there's like so many different, like just my head spinning and thinking about all the things that could come from this type of like endeavor, you know, like, like you're saying, people don't have to leave and they can, you know, invest in the the land and conservation and protection and all that stuff who okay let's maybe go back who started this company like indie fly who had this idea (laughs) so it's it's really it's a really interesting story um so uh back backing up all the way to the beginning coast sunglasses um they had a a pro that they worked with at the time that was in this little village um it's called rewa um in yep. the middle of the Amazon basin on a birding trip. Um, and so they were just using Rewa as kind of like an overnight stop. And he, um, you know, as he does talk to the people and, um, you know, figured out that they had Arapaima, this really special fish there, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, hadn't been caught on the fly. That's a whole nother thing. Um, but, um, you know, he came back to Costa and was telling Costa about it. And Costa was like, man, we should really figure out a way to help them. So the flip side of that is, um, you know, the first time I went to Rewa, which was one of the very first trips, the first trip, um, I expected loincloths and spears. And what I got was Ed Hardy t-shirts. Um, right. You know, almost all of these communities have removed from the barter economy and now have external pressures um, economically to have jobs and an income and sustain themselves and all these things. And so what happens there is that you get a lot of pressure from foreign timber companies, foreign mining companies, all all these outside, let's call them extractive industries that, um, you know, will walk into a community, give a box of t-shirts and expect, uh, you know, mining rights. (laughs) And, um, you know, so they, they, that's brutal. 
Yeah, this village really, you know, wanted to do something different and made they made the hard choice to like, hey, you know, we don't want to be like our neighbors or our peers or villagers down the river. Um, we really want to do things a little bit different and made this very hard decision that they are going to be the people who are known for trying to conserve their resources. Um, they just needed a way to um, make it financially work. And so... Right. Um, you know, Costa was like, look, you know, let's figure out if we can help them. And so they put together a, a small team, which I was honored to be part of to kind of go figure this out. And, um, you know, fast forward, uh, you know, we'd figured out a model um, that we thought could be successful and, um, you know, probably scalable around the world. And uh, the, the um, you know, society or the world at large didn't really need another nonprofit, but nobody was doing what we were doing. So we just, just a couple of us just said, you know, let, let's set up an organization and let's try to scale this around the world. Yeah. So, okay. So basically like you guys were went and found that even some of the most remote, um, once idyllic indigenous communities have been affected by colonization in a way that it's like, wow, they really are, have been touched by, miners coming in and forest companies come forestry companies coming in and and it's like they want themselves these communities want to um tap into the tourism that could exist in that place but they just don't have the means so indiefly was like we can kind of help with that part of it you guys know this the place we have the kind of business money we can kind of combine and that's yeah, so that's the let, let's stick with that project for a minute and i'll just yeah. t talk about some of the challenges to that right um so uh, you know, and look, this, the whole like loincloth Spears versus Ed Hardy t-shirts was definitely my own naivete. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you, when we first started going there, all they had was a shortwave radio, right? Right. Um, you know, that reached the next village, that reached the next village, eventually got to the, to Georgetown, the capital. Um, so communication was an issue. Um, you know, they really had no way to invite people into their village to experience what they had there. Um, uh, there was a financial or a banking issue, right? Um, you know, their, their bank, quote unquote, at the time was a two day river trip away. And right. um, they could, I forget what the exact number, but they could only accept like $5,000 a month. Um, you know, you want to go on that trip today, it's $7,600 per rod. And so, right. um, you know, it, it's, it's just a, a capacity issue there that had to mm -hmm. be worked out. Um, and so now you fast forward uh, through reinvestment, um, largely by their own part. And I want to be here clear here that, you know, all the credit goes to to the village is, um, you know, the lodge chairman walks around with a smartphone. He can't call anybody, but they installed satellite Internet and he can answer client emails. Um, and, right. you know, they have the banking thing worked out to where now, um, you know, people in the know are comfortable sending that amount of money to uh, the middle of the rainforest, if you will. And, yeah. um, you know, it, it's just, uh, you know, as the years gone by, they've made these constant improvements as really, really strong uh, businessmen and women. And, uh, you know, they're, they're able to also communicate with the outside world. And so like part of part of what we did in the beginning, sorry to cut you off, no, no. was, you know, simply like, told the story and said, you know, look, this is a community in need and mm -hmm. fly anglers are people who step up and, you know, they went down and explored. It's also a really cool experience. Um, yeah, and, uh, you know, they, uh, 
they they were obviously vital to the whole thing, but you know, the the villagers made the the tough call in the beginning. It's wild. I mean, yeah, well, ecotourism is like um, we talk about it a lot actually with people because it's like sort of uh, something that's. I think people are becoming like everywhere are becoming more kind of aware of the benefits of it. Like yeah. maybe we don't cut the whole forest down and that's how we make our money. Maybe we put a lodge and people can go hiking in the beautiful trees. Like people, and it's people, like, that turns out to be, you know, lucrative. People want to go and explore these places. You see it like yeah. all over the place, right? If they, and if you can find like a socially responsible way of doing it, people will definitely flock to it. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Especially if the communities want it to. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. Cause Obviously. it doesn't feel like as ex- exploitive as like, so many yeah. other things where you're like go in take some pictures for instagram we're stealing and, the, like we're building a mine here <laughs> yeah yeah know, exactly like, what are you gonna do about it yeah i mean I, so I had, a, I had a bit of a question you mentioned um with the arapaima and people kind of being aware of the environment and stuff and so i'm curious how much of like with with conservation and like you know this is the fishing is a resource for a lot of these places I'm kind of curious how how catch and release fishing is received in these places where it's like you know you're you're doing it for your sport and it's, it's interesting it's like you know this is a conversation we have all the time with people like why do you fish if you're just putting the fish back but also it's like how um i guess how it seems it seems like people are quite aware of conservation and the impact that's you know the climate change and the, the environment's changing so h- how much how much do you see this like through the communities you're going through like how aware is everyone of what's going on how aware is everyone of like you know we need to be doing something and kind of i guess it's like the more people can see what's happening do you find people like that's a factor in wanting to facilitate this sort of thing great question um let me let me answer your question by giving you an example or a story so um you know one of the things that you try to do when you um you know want to have a huge impact or, or a bigger impact with people that are in a community you know fly community in this case is you know geographic diversity species diversity those two things are pretty important so as we looked kind of at a map and did due diligence on okay what is the next project outside of that one in um that's very jungle driven right um we were very intrigued by um, French Polyne- Polynesia, um, you know, 118 islands and atolls. In theory, you make it work one place, you can make it work multiple islands and atolls within that country. Um, you know, fast forward, we, after looking at a different island, we ended up on this island called Anna or Anna. And um, what happened there was, um, you know, largely a bonefish fishery. Uh, it has, uh, you know, it's a little bit unique in that it has one place with enough tidal inflow for bonefish to go out of the lagoon and spawn. And, um, you know, that was somewhat of a concern, but again, like, you know, the first thing that we do is we, uh, we start everything with science. So we sent a scientist there who actually ended up staying for like three years. Um, and we partnered with another local, um, nonprofit and, uh, you know, together, what's that? It's a pretty sweet job. Yeah. It's, <laughs> Three years. It's, it's interesting. You know, um, he would also be a great interview. Um, it, it's a guy named Alex. He's from uh, the University of Hawaii. We helped him finish his PhD. But he, um, you know, was he, he's honestly like the nicest guy in the world. And, you know, I saw him, um, you know, maybe year two that he was in. Um, 
uh, or after he'd, he'd been on French Polynesia, he was like a completely different person. Um, yeah. You know, he's got long hair. He speaks a different language now. He's uh, part of the community, which is a really cool st- story there. I'll tell you in a minute. Um, but, you know, he came in kind of as the, <coughs> the world's nicest guy. And he had to, um, you know, assimilate into this culture, which is known for being warriors. Um, you know, they had a cannibal army up until uh, like the 1950s or 60s. Um, you know, it, it's uh, it's just a place that can be wow. hard to um, become one of the one one of them, in so to speak. Anyway, yeah. um, so what he found, and, and I, I am getting around to an answer to your question, is uh, basically the that bonefish fishery was in collapse. And so what, what they did was, um, you know, spawning aggregations, they all kind of go in one place, swim in a circle, go out to the open ocean. Um, so over the years, uh, you know, they had, uh, devised these series of public and private traps. And so they're little stone mazes and basically for, for, uh, to exemplify it fish goes left makes it out of the open ocean spawns comes back hopefully fish goes right ends up in chicken wire and gets eaten or what we found out was uh shipped off the island so you know the reason why we thought it was a concern in the beginning is because this is a very vivid memory for me sitting around first trip in somebody's driveway conversation starter what's your favorite fish to eat you know clearly that's your diet um everyone without hesitation says bonefish um you know which is not something you hear very often no. and uh we're like oh man like we should probably figure this out fairly quickly and so um what what the science team looks at is something called spawning potential ratio so healthy fishery is around 20 uh is around uh 20 percent um you know we we figured out it was the science team figured out this fishery was at nine. Um, you know, so the fishery was in collapse. Uh, and this is my answer to your question. It was very much a generational divide. Um, so the older generation said, um, there's been bonefish here my entire life. There will always be bonefish. Um, the younger generation who at that point we had worked with the school and, you know, they created this little um, marina educational area. They would go out every day in the lagoon and see what was there. We bought them a drone. They would go up and, um, you know, uh, fly it and count spawning aggregations and, uh, you know, bring it back. And they had, a, we got them a software program to where they could count fish. Um, and so they were very much invested and the kids, um, were very much of the mindset, like we need to do something about this now. Mm-hmm. Um, and another cool antidote to this story is every kid on that Island leaves school, uh, leaves for a different Island school at age 11. So, um, these are all kids aged 10 and under. Um, and so what they did was, um, they went around, if you fast forward to the community and got what's called a Rahui past. And a Rahui is this ancient Polynesian custom that is, uh, you know, they call it a political move. Really it's a, it's a moratorium on harvest. And so, you know, like back in the day you broke a Rahui, they cut off your arm or, or, you know, kill you or something like that. Now it's a little, it's a little less strict, but, um, (laughs) It's, it requires a referendum. Wow. So they took a bus from door to door all throughout the community and said, look, grandpa, grandma, uncle, dad, whoever, um, I want you to start making decisions with me in mind and just 
not for yourself. And uh, wow. these kids, 10 and under, got a Rahui pass for like the first time in hundreds of years on, on Anna. And um, it became this really cool conservation story that nobody saw coming um, all through youth leadership on, on the atoll. And, uh, you know, it kind of culminated back to Alex. It culminated in this big ceremony. So for how that works is for five years during the three months of the spawn, um, nobody can capture or kill a bonefish. And so it, basically what they were doing before was just chopping them off at the legs, right? And so they allow them to go out and spawn and come back. And, um, you know, uh, right. now that SPR, that spawning potential ratio, is, is over 20%. Um, we'd That's like right. to see it get to closer to 40 because mm -hmm. we think what's going to happen eventually is that they're going to go back to fishing the way that they were. Um, That's great at, progress. Which is completely understandable. But, you know back to the Alex story. So, um, big Rahui ceremony. We all go down for it. Um, what I found funny is that they sacrificed two adult bonefish. So, um, right. they bur bury bonefish and it's very much this cultural, um, event. And, uh, they asked everybody to bring a rock from wherever you were from. And you put the rock on the mantle where they sacrifice the bonefish and, uh, everybody kind of places that rock around and, uh, you know, it says I'm Matt, I'm from X, um, and they got to Alex and Alex said, you know, my name Alex. And he went to say, I'm from Hawaii and everybody just screamed and nah, you know, like at that point he was wow. one of them. That's awesome. It was just really cool, powerful thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's a very, very long answer to your, to your okay. question, but I, I hope I got there. So eventually. you're saying we, we need young kids to petition for change. <laughs> man yes save the fisheries i have a seven-year-old i'll get her out there with a clipboard <laughs> oh, the next gen, will do that's it really gonna fix it but it's also I mean, showing them the proof you know. of what's happening you know visualizing it so that they understand yeah, yeah it's a big part i mean you definitely hear it like when you talk to like when you run into older people on the river and stuff like in here in ontario you hear that a lot of people are like oh there's still trout in there and like, i used to catch 15 trout a day and you're like yeah where, where are they now they're all gone yeah yeah yeah, yeah thanks that works <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Wow. What a, like, this is just like the craziest, like, just such a different thing. <laughs> like, how do you guys find the communities that you want to work with? Yeah. Like, do you just show up to places and you're yeah. like, what's up? Interested? <laughs> you know, like, because that's obviously would be a weird, yeah. weird thing. <laughs> yeah, that's another great question. Um, the answer is no, we don't do that. Um, <laughs> but what we do do is, you know, we have, uh, uh, group of people who are very heavily traveled and they'll tend right. to go to a place and say, Hey, you know, these people need help. I think, uh, you know, the model could work here. Um, that list is actually becoming very long. Um, you know, right. look as a nonprofit, we have limited resources, um, you know, people, money, time, all <laughs> of those things. And so, um, we're really good about doing due diligence. Um, mm -hmm. again, these are a hundred percent community owned and operated, um, entities. So the, the, the first thing to do is to kind of have a conversation with the community and gauge interest. Um, because if they aren't interested, the, the model doesn't work. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's kind of the first step. Um, luckily we have a pretty good success rate there. Um, but you know, the, e even if you look in the United States, um, so we have two domestic programs and you know, the need is, you know, just as great here in the United States as it is anywhere. And, um, you know, so it, it, it's challenging. There's lots of places in the world that, that could do this. There's also, uh, you know, 
the other avenue of that is there's lots of really good um, operators who aren't um, indigenous themselves, but have a benefit to an indigenous community, um, which so we do like social impact projects with them. So, um, you know, over COVID, we did a solar ins- installation in a village in Lesotho, which is um, and an, the company's called African Waters. It's a group of South Africans who work with a um, uh, village that's a yellowfish fishery. And um, the story there is that you know, they had never had what we would now consider kind of a basic human need of electricity. And what they really wanted was light. Um, And it was one of these things where the government had promised it for the last decade and it just hadn't happened. And, you know, for us, we, you know, can make a pretty major change in people's day-to-day lives for uh, nominal investment. And so uh, we were able to install 59 um, little kits, which came with a solar panel, an inverter, um, and, you know, a light and a charging station. And, uh, you know, for the first time it was, uh, you know, everybody in the village had light and it was, you know, this really cool, powerful thing to see. But I think one of the, one of the coolest quotes, um, that I heard that came out from that was, you know, no matter where you're at in in that structure of the village, you know, whether you're in leadership or whether you're a laborer or whether you're unemployed, you know, everybody's kind of on equal footing now. Everybody has light in their house. And, right. uh, you know, it, it was super cool. But, you know, I'll, I'll say about, you know, African waters, uh, those guys are amazing. And, you know, for us, uh, we you know, if you say I'm having a positive impact on a community, we want you to prove it. Right. Um, you know, how many people are you employing? Um, what are you doing for conservation? Uh, how much money actually goes back to the village? Um, you know, all of those things. And so they really stepped up and, uh, were able to prove all that. And it's been a great partnership. Has yeah, that's cool. have you done anything, uh, in Belize at all? Uh, Cause I know Belize, uh, some places, um, some communities struggle with, um, overfishing and this is their one way you know these communities to make a living is to fish with the sands the sands is a problem because it's you know um and and i know a lot of people are trying to work with them to figure out a way they can devise some sort of a new sane that won't affect other um wildlife and only focus on the one that they're actually fishing for i don't know if if you've touched on that or if you've yeah, that's the bycatch issue. Um, oh, yeah. uh, we, we haven't done any work in Belize. Um, it, it's certainly on the list, mm-hmm. but um, no, we, we aren't active there yet. Yet, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's cool, like, um, just the idea of, like, experiencing these places like, with people that are from there and the indigenous people from that area, you know? Like, uh, if you're going to go somewhere, I mean, then see it. Like, who, who better to, to share it with you than the people that, you know, like, own that land? Um it's like it reminds me of like, I mean, like even like northern Ontario and places like that, you know, like when we fished up, the furthest we fished north was the Attawapiskat River. And remember we fished with um, Norm, the dude, Norm, yeah. who's from uh, Fort Albany and like just spending, you know, a week with him seeing, you know, his river was like, I think that was like what really made it so special, you know, because it was like, I don't know, there's just something about that experience. like. Have the communities themselves like really embraced this, and like how, how are they responding to to sort of the uh, the projects that are going on, and having people come and taking them out, you know? Yeah, 
It's it's uh, it's cyclical, I would say, or it goes in phases, right? Um, you know, I mentioned earlier in the beginning, I think you're a bit crazy, um, rightfully so. But um, you know, once you you earn the trust, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's something that we're huge on. You know, uh, let's take uh, Wind River, which is our first domestic project, um, two point two million acres, Wyoming. Um, it's uh, it's one of the few reservations in the United States that actually has two tribes on it. So one tribe's ancestral land, federal government, you know, their original treaty was 44 million acres, um, which if you can visualize that is wow. multiple states in the West wide. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, within like five years, it got shrunk down to um, 2.2 million acres. Um, and uh then the government put their arch enemies kind of on the same piece of land um and so there's just this long history of um skepticism that's been built up and you know part of what we really try to do is to um take the time to earn trust and so you know if you're talking about trying to create generational change amongst you know people um, resources, all of those things, we feel pretty strongly that you have to be willing to take the time on the front end to do it right and earn the trust. And so, um, you know, once you can get through that and, you know, build those relationships, um, you know, I would say, yeah, I have, you know, really strong friendships, you know, that even go outside of, um, you know, what we're trying to do there. Um, uh, in these places. And so, you know, my point is it goes through these phases and then, you know, you start inviting people down and typically what, what we'll do and kind of how the model progresses is, you know, we'll start doing like angler research trips. So you go down with the expectation that you're going to, um, not catch a fish, let it go and go catch another fish. You're going to catch a fish. Um, the scientist is going to do his or her thing. And, um, you're going to learn about that process and then you know um, however long that takes you're going to be patient with understanding that's benefiting the resource and then you're going to go catch another fish Um, right you know and so we'll start trickling people in um, that are adding to the to the economic input of the community um, while benefiting the resource and then we'll fully open it up and you know one of these one of the challenges with doing all this is you know the the ownership side's pretty easy um you know that's legal that's um you know whatever it needs to be that that right. part is typically pretty easy the operations part is a little bit harder so the workforce development piece of it and um you know everyone from cooks to housekeepers to um drivers to guides which is very technical as you guys know um you know that takes time to develop all that and so um you know once that comes into play it's a different phase um you know and then you kind of open the floodgates if you will and typically knock on wood hopefully this continues we've had a really strong interest in in uh, new destinations so Wow. Yeah. So it's a long, yeah. I, I was just wondering, you know, just because I know everybody's got questions, um, but what? Oh, I'll it, shut up and you guys can ask questions. No, no, I just. There's so much to so talk, much to about, talk so about. about. I, like, I'm, I'm very so curious. Based on how passionate you are, I feel like there's got to be a project that you've just been dying to sink your teeth into. Um, and I just want to know what that is. If there, if, if there is something that's on your mind that you've just been like, I, this, this place I really want to get in there 
Yeah. I mean, um, there's multiple, um, you know, when I think Westerners talk about indigenous, they go to Africa. Um, and I think there are lots of places in Africa that this could work. There's also lots of geopolitical concerns in Africa, Mm -hmm. um, including safety, um, and cost, you know, quite frankly, you know, um, you know, we looked at one project, um, which I probably shouldn't name, but you know, it was just going to be cost prohibitive. You're, you're like 25 grand all in, right. And you got to be able to disappear off the grid for like two weeks. And, you know, so the business model have to, has to work as well. Um, so definitely lots of places in Africa, but I'm not going to answer your question, but I'll tell you what really excites me is that, you know, our whole model is one in which, um, you know, eventually a community gets to a point where they're a hundred percent operating this a hundred percent owning this, um, all on their own. They're mm-hmm. interacting with clients. They are doing all the logistics. They're doing all their own marketing. It's a hundred percent, um, sustainable there. It, it's always a hundred percent of their business, but it, you know, they're doing it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we are able to, um, you know, deploy those resources that were, were in effect there right. elsewhere. But what really excites me, and this is starting to happen in a couple places, is then people from those communities go and teach their peers in another community. And, you know, then yeah. it becomes this, like, we move a lot quicker. And, you know, oh, yeah. it's, That's what you, uh, want. you know, when a bunch of white dudes um, or a <laughs> bunch of non-natives show up yeah. and you're, you know, it, it just, the ball moves faster mm. when um, it's peer to peer almost. Absolutely. And uh, yeah. that's, what's really exciting to me. Do you have, um, do you find like people are seeking your company out after like hearing positive things about how it's been Good implemented? Question. Um, yeah. The answer is yes. Uh, we, and this is back to probably my, my self-promotion thing. Um, we've flown under the radar for a long time. Um, you know, almost purposely, like we're, we're not the nonprofit organization that wants to raise money to raise money. Um, we want to raise money to the need. Um, you know, we really felt strongly that we needed to prove the model out first and then, you know, ask people, um, to help us grow. Um, and so we're, we're doing a better job of that now, but on the destination side, which I think is what you're asking about, um, the answer is yes. Um, you know, typically like if you're in the fly fishing industry, I hope that you've heard about Indie fly. I hope that you've heard about the impact, but more importantly, I hope you've heard about these cool experiences that you can go on and do what you love to do. And, um, with the added benefit of having this tremendous impact on the community. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, uh, you know, I, I hope that answer is yes. And, and I believe it is. Um, but, well, I imagine as well, like as cool. um, a fly angler that's interested in traveling to a remote place, it would have some merit knowing that like, hey, this operation was started by Indie Fly. That, you know, there's some like, it, like you said, like send, sending tens of thousands of dollars into the middle of the jungle, right? If you're like, oh, okay, well, this was an Indie Fly project. This was, a, and, you know, give some like um, some clout, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I I think that sets us apart, and this certainly isn't the right way to do it from an organizational sustainability part, but, you know, we felt very strongly from the very beginning that the only way that this works is if they are 100% community owned. You know, Mm -hmm. like the easy way to do a nonprofit like this would be to say, okay, I'm going to do a microfinance thing where, you know, we're going to give you X dollars in terms of a capital infusion and you can build a lodge and you can train people and you can do all those things and you're going to pay us 
a half a yeah. percent or one percent back um or the other the other way going. would be yeah or the other way yeah. would be is you know um we're going to take a 10 percent stake in the business and that's how we're going to fund the next project yeah. um you know we, we feel very strongly that it doesn't work like that. Um, you know, the one being just, it's not the right thing to do, but two, um, you know, uh, if you want to have an impact in the community and again, this is, um, this is, uh, I'm going to use the term empower here, um, empowering the, uh, you know, these vital stewards of 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity to have the biggest impact on their homelands that they can, yeah. um, mm-hmm. 100% of those funds need to stay in that village Absolutely. Um, or community. Yeah. So, um, you know, yeah. Uh, I, I will say though, man, one of the things that we try to do when, when we look at new projects is, uh, you know, how do we how do we appeal to the most amount of anglers, right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the domestic thing's a little bit easier, but, uh, you know, all of our international programs, it's, 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 uh, you know, it's a long, they're longer trips, um, you know, seven to 10 days and they are largely spent off the grid. So you're, you gotta be able to disconnect. Um, and they're not cheap, um, for, for a reason, right. Um, you know, we want to attract the right type of angler. Um, and so, you know, it's, uh, and have the biggest amount of impact. And so, um, you know, we try more and more to look for um, places that are a little bit more easily accessible that mm-hmm. can have the same impact, um, maybe at a different price point. Yeah. yeah. Do you yeah. find like, uh, <laughs> this might be a kind of weird question, have it, has, have, are you aware of any like copycat type situations where people see like, hey, there's a potential to make some money here? I hope and so. Exactly. That's yeah, a good thing. Because that's kind of like. No, but like in no, a negative but, way, they're but, like trying to exploit these places. And Oh, oh exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah not, not in the sense that you're thinking of, um, thankfully yet, but um, I'll give you a funny um, Guyana story. So. Uh, you know, trip is marketed as you're, you know, hundreds of miles in the middle of rainforest. You're not going to see another person the whole time you're there. Um, you know, you're, you're spending hours and hours in a boat. Um, you know, there's lots of funny stories about people almost getting lost. You know, I'll deviate here for a minute. Um, you know, one of the first trips down, we're just exploring, right? Um, and we've been, uh, you know, it's the dry season. So all you see on the river is a 30 foot cliff. Um, so you have no reference of where you are. You're just on the water somewhere. And, uh, you know, we're, we've been out for four hours or so, uh, fishing with a, a guy named Austin and, uh, you know, Austin's a funny guy who cracks a lot of jokes and, uh, we, you know, get hooked up on a fish. The fish immediately swims to the bank. Um, clearly, you know, there's roots coming out of the bank, clearly going to get broken off. Austin makes a comment like somebody's going to have to jump in and untangle this thing. And, uh, you know, before we can make it, you know, laugh it off, this guy is jumping in the water and all we see are like six black Cayman sink. Oh and we're God. like, you know, you need to get back in the boat. Um, anyway, where I'm going with the story is market, <laughs> marketed as a place where you're not going to see anyone. Um, you know, we're leaving the lodge one day. We go down river about 30 minutes and uh, we pass another boat with um, clearly not locals in it. Mm, right. Um, and they're like waving us down. Um, and uh, we pull up to him and, uh, you know, we're like, what are you doing here? You know? And, uh, yeah. they're like, well, we found this trip online. It was like, 
half the cost or a third of the cost of the rewa operation. And so we just thought we'd book that. But they hadn't had like food or water in two days. And, you know, they hadn't caught any fish. And, you know, so um, the answer is yes. Like within communities, there tends to be some type of um, animosity or even sometimes jealousy of, of what this community is doing in terms of, you know, employing their own people and doing good for the resource. And so they try to replicate it, but they don't understand the logistics or the business end of what it takes to um, provide people with uh, good and in this case safe experience, and so um, we've ran into that, but we haven't, you know, we haven't ran into, um, you know, there are lots of organizations doing great things in the outdoors, just not as specific as what we do, um, probably because it's it's a little challenging. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, but the impact that it can have, it's just like, yeah, it's just like crazy how many things mm-hmm. it effects yeah. environmental it's uh, it's socioeconomic Economic, it's yeah. uh, you know it's just so many things it's great it's super yeah. cool no oh, thanks what made you want to do this type of work <laughs> great like, question why do you um yeah so back to when we kind of started the organization um it was me and a couple other guys and uh we uh you know kind of came from varying backgrounds um, somebody had to run the thing. I committed to doing it for a couple of years. That's, you know, 10 years ago. Um, right. and I'm still here, but you know, I'm super passionate about, um, you know, service, um, you know, impacting people and, and the environment. And, you know, this is something that, uh, that passion has only grown as the organization has grown. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just one of those things that, you know, uh, it's it's it kind of yeah i mean at this point it's it's a passion project and uh you know i have a very understanding wife (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean it's a really cool job so you know i i totally get it but um an interesting one you know yeah it takes a lot of you know it takes a lot of something to keep going if it's like you say it's a passion project and you know yeah and look you know i i think that fly fishing is this really uh cool uh, in my opinion, under underutilized tool for good. Um, yeah. you know, it, it's one of these very few, um, hobbies or passions that, uh, you know, attracts this really committed, um, do good group that, uh, you know, uh, you know, can have a tremendous impact while doing what you love to do in these places that are really cool around the world. Um, you know, like we, uh, we have a guy, Bryant, who's, um, from the Menominee reservation, um, who's on our team. He like runs our North American programs. And, um, you know, when he first got in one of, uh, I I met him through, uh, Kristen Mustad who owns Nautilus reels. And Bryant told me this story is like, you know, he reached out to, to Kristen, to Kristen for some help at some point. And, uh, he's like, Kristen told him, he's like, look, you're going to find little to very few assholes in this industry. And I think that that is true. You know, it's a group of passionate people who want to do really good things and have an impact. And so, um, you know, fly fishing to me is like the perfect tool to have that impact. 
It's funny you say that. Yeah, like I'm thinking about it now. Like I don't think I've met really any any assholes in this industry. <laughs> you know, everybody does tend to be a pretty good person. Like they're just nice you, man. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah That's no, cool. Yeah, fly fishing is. It's funny. Like when we talk about it, as like this sort of niche thing, and then it's like no, but it can help indigenous totally. communities. Uh, you know, like it's like so no, it's so in, crazy. It's interesting. I think you see this in like any like super niche sports. Like I saw it in rock climbing a lot. And then in fly fishing, you're like, oh, it's the same right. sort of thing. There's like, people realize it's like, is kind of a ridiculous hobby, and people are doing it or having a great time doing it. And if you're yeah. not having a great time, yeah. then like, stop doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And funny, uh, yeah. funny enough, you're not gonna love it unless you try it. You're not gonna understand yeah. unless you do it. And that's the that's hard. Right. That's yeah. the hard part is getting like I'm trying to get Andy, one of our close friends, Matt. He takes photos for us from time to time, and. The hardest thing, hey, we have a break. I'm like, Andy, take up a rod. Let me teach you how to cast. So, you know, he's not, he's gonna not gonna fish. do he it. Want, he I don't want know why he doesn't want to fish. It's like a weird. He's so weird. Point, you know, it's like, what are you doing? yeah, I know. It's like you're here. <laughs> like just yeah. fish. He's like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> and but as soon as he touches the rod, as soon as he casts, as soon as he catches something, he's gonna fall in love with it. You know, and then, mm. you know, yeah, the rest yeah. is history. Do, do you find do you find that Andy just may be intimidated? Cause I certainly went through that. Like when I first started fishing, I was Andy. like, this looks super challenging yeah. and I'm just going to make myself look like an asshole. Dude. Yeah. To learn. Uh, <laughs> Andy likes to like lay down on a rock and like soak up the sun. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what he does. Yeah. That's, that's his, his passion. passion. <laughs> he appreciates the waterways. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. yeah. I know he'll get into it one day. Yeah. He said he, said he, he messaged. I think he can be intimidated. He actually right? messaged me the other day. Absolutely. He's, he's fallen in love. Um, maybe we should oh, bleep wow, that out. Go. And his shout out to yeah, his partner, Ashley. She wants to uh, learn how to fly fish because she's a fish. Right. She's an she's an oh. angler, and we'll so now one. Andy wants to <laughs> wants to, wants to be taught out. This is this shout happened to Andy, today. Man. Anyway, sorry, Matt. I digress. I just wanted to let you know. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I love that story because now it's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Now yeah, it's going to happen. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, okay, Matt. We do five questions at the end of every show where we ask same five questions to every guest uh they're called mitchy's fishies five um so we're gonna ask you them now um and uh and then that'll be that it's not like a buzzer beat it's just five more questions you can take as much time as you want to answer them um way to put okay, me on so the, the first <laughs> i know it is there's some there's some good putting you on the spot questions in this in this batch uh okay so the first one is if you had to pick a favorite fish what would it be and why what would be your favorite fish Oh man, see that I, I'm sure that people give you multiple answers to this all the time because it's you know you can't pick one. But I'm gonna yep. try my best. Um, I'm gonna say Napoleon Rass. Um, I think that they are just this wow. cool, iconic Never species. Yeah. Everyone kind of looks different. If you look like really closely at like around their gills, they have these yeah. really intricate designs. Um, yeah, it's crazy. just a cool, cool fish. Um, I saw one on Indie Fly today. Yeah, right. I mean, Fly. that's yeah. probably why it's in my head because there's a there's actually a, a picture of it around here somewhere. But um, yeah, uh, man. But like, you know, I'm also going to say, you know, the. 20 plus inch brown trout and yeah. the giant trevally and yeah. you know all of them man yeah. but that was a great answer we have 100 percent of never heard fish as their favorite yeah. fish on the show i love it, <laughs> it well, you so know, there you go it, it, it's ras. i think you know it's not really a targeted species all that often um they do have them in uh 
and Anna at our uh, at our project. So, can and do we have time for another story about this? Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, yeah. I'm going to leave this person unnamed so I don't embarrass him. But okay. um, so there is one boat that uh, a guy has. His name's Tapanu that can go outside the reef in Anna, and so um, we're down there on this trip, and uh, um, he has a grandson. Um, who is by far the best angler, not fly angler, but angler on the island. And he goes, like, he, this kid who is 10 now will spend eight hours a day on the boat with his grandpa um, and not complain once. Anyway, we're out there, and, you know, we're fishing into the reef, which we haven't done a lot, but that's, you know, generally where you can find Napoleon. Um, and uh, so we're fishing for, like, two hours, and this kid in French says, you know, Grandpa, these guys don't understand fishing. And the mate on the boat heard it. And he attaches a little crab to a hand line and sticks it down in the water for 30 seconds and pulls the deepest blue, the biggest Napoleon I've ever seen out of the reef. Whoa. And, um, you know, everybody's laughing because, you know, yeah. um, Toa Nui is the kid's name. Toa Nui's, you know, proclamation was correct. But then the mate yeah. just kills it right there on the boat. And um, this guy who uh, will remain nameless, like his whole body just turned white. Right. And, you know, he's like, what did I just do? <laughs> and uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, so those things get huge. I mean, yeah. pull in story. They're beautiful fish. Like they're so cool. So you're going to have to edit that out so we can get to the five faster. <laughs> no, that's totally cool. We can we can go all night, man. I mean, geez. Um, okay. Uh, the second question is: If you could fish anywhere in the world right now, assuming it's like the best time to go, and you're gonna have a great time, where would you go and why? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, as as I'm been freezing for now, what nine months. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to say somewhere warm, you know, I've yep. always been really interested in, um, like the Congo. Um, yeah. you know, I think that would be super cool. Whoa. Uh, yep. I, it probably would have, uh, you know, I now have a family and it's probably never going to happen, but, yep. uh, I think that would be super cool. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll stick with that one answer. That's a good answer. Mm-hmm. The Congo looks mm-hmm. incredible. I mean, like, it looks like one of the most amazing places you could go. So, I mean, fly fishing there would be wild. I'm also not anywhere good enough of a fly angler to do that. So, <laughs> well, hey, yeah, you know, I mean, part of the part of the trip is just going someplace and exploring, and you know, yeah, and that's what's cool about yeah. fly fishing. It's like so much more than we say it all the time. So much more than Congo would fish, be a trip. You know? That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, I can dig that. That's definitely first the first time I've heard, heard that, that too. Yeah. Man, I'm um, on a roll here. Yeah. <laughs> You're on a roll. You're on a roll. Or I'm just uh, an okay. idiot and should be giving different answers. <laughs> no, these are great. These are super cool. Definitely not. Uh, okay, number three is, uh, what is one of your best or favorite fishing memories uh, of all time? One of the best that stand out to you. Yeah. Um, so I've developed this really uh, close relationship with a guy uh, 
who is super inspiring. He's the director of fishing game on the Wind River Indian Reservation. Um, and I've never met someone with a more challenging job that has just this continuing drive to do, um, you know, good for his homeland. And uh, I would say the first time that we went out fishing together and, you know, he, he's been an angler his whole life, but, you know, not, not a fly angler. And the first time he landed a fish on the fly, like I, I think his face will be um, ingrained in me for a while. Mm. Um, he now also <laughs> blames me for his wife's expensive fly fishing habit. So <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. That first fish, you know, like that's, that's always like, yeah, for me, man, that's, that's kind of what it's always been. Um, you know, yeah. oftentimes when we go, like, I'll just sit in the boat, man. I, I get as much enjoyment now out totally. of watching other people catch fish, mm-hmm. um, than me, me casting a rod all day long. So. I totally agree. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, I mean, you like form such a special relationship with the water and fish and showing someone get excited about it. It's like really exciting. It's like, wow, this person thinks this is cool. Okay, I'm not alone. I'm not like some weird loser. Like, that's super cool. (laughs) Yeah, I can dig that. Um, Okay, number four, Mitch's Fishies 5, is why do you fly fish? Why do you fly fish at all? Oh, man, I'm going to get really deep here. Um, I do do think that there is some type of... um, uh, chemical something that happens when you're outside standing in a river, walking a flat, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, uh, I, I guess I w- I would do it for that coupled with the fact that, uh, you know, now I've seen it, there's a demonstrable thing in my head to where I know how much good that this sport can do. And, right. uh, so I, I guess I look at it with a different perspective, but and like you know i'm uh would consider myself just above a novice so um you know the whole idea of you know i'm not going to learn this thing in its entirety or master it before i die is uh very appealing to me yeah true yeah just like kind of the like how it can humble you you know like how amazing it is in that sense but yeah that is interesting yeah like uh, we've never heard I don't think uh, that's that's another first. Mm-hmm. I think like why do you fly fish? Like you see the positive impacts it's gonna have on communities. <laughs> like that's true. That's cool. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. All right. Am I four okay. for four now? You're four for four. <laughs> um, let's, let's see, see what, what this was. <laughs> yeah. uh, this is the curveball. Yeah, isn't it? it is. <laughs> it is. Uh, okay. So this last question is, uh, what fly pattern represents you best, and why? If you were a fly, what would you be? <laughs> oh man. Um, We've got tons that, of woolly you know, boogers. Like uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's like, I feel like that's, that's a good the easy one. answer, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the humble answer. You know, I, I'm not going to say the pink worm. Um, we've yeah, had some we've of those. Some of those. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. That's awesome. Uh, man, I think I think it would be, uh, it doesn't even, even have a name, but... Um, the, the, there's a, a fly that resembles a peacock bass that we use to target Arapaima. And, okay. um, you know, we, uh, 
I'm going to get deep again. We started like, you know, giant fish means giant hook and giant pattern, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But the way that these fish eat is um, they're like vacuum feeders. So they go up behind the fish and they just hold it or behind the fly and they suck it in and they just hold it in their mouth. Um, and if you ever watch somebody, uh, you know, try to set a hook in an arapaima, it's very amusing because when you think that you have it set, I mean, you're just constantly setting and setting. And when you think yeah. you have it set, they jump and they just spit the hook and, you know, the, the right. down play. So what fast forward is what really happened is that it's, you know, uh, uh, like an eight hook with, you know, and, and very little pattern. Right. Um, mm -hmm. but colorful cause the water is dense. And so I think, you know, um, somewhat of an enigma is that fly. And, um, I've been told that I'm somewhat of an enigma multiple times. And so, yeah. um, I think that that would probably track a little bit. I like that. So it's like a little peacock bass, basically. Yeah. It's imitation. Yeah. Five for five. Oh, I need cool. to see a picture of this fly. I gotta try to find, I gotta, yeah, me too. Yeah. I think maybe we um, can, I, uh, maybe we'll ask you for a picture of it or something yeah, later I, on. Yeah, I, I can send one to you. Um, yeah, that'd be cool. That's a great answer. Yeah, that is, is five it, for five. We have definitely. Is never it a heard fly that. that one of the one of the communities you've you visited made on like it's an original? So they do now. Um, I think the right. first guy to figure that out was Oliver White. Oliver um, White. Okay. 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 But, yeah. Dang. Very cool. cool. Man. Good answers. Yeah. Hey, there you go. Those are all original uh, Mitchie's Fishies Very five. Good. So Very good. Uh, how about that? <laughs> I don't know how great they um, were, but they're different. <laughs> they were great man they were great and it was great getting to chat and uh like matt thank you so much um for coming on the show and, and just kind of uh yeah taking us through indie fly and and what what you, what y'all are doing uh, i think it's super cool mm -hmm. um how can people get involved with indie fly shameless like, plug time you know, where can they find you yeah, how can they help time. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's a few ways. One, um, awareness is always a big thing for us. So, um, you know, check out what we do. Um, you know, there's quite a few uh, videos and other content related items out there. Um, if you like what we do, tell your friends about what we do. Um, the other thing is, you know, um, if you want to go on a trip, reach out. Um, you know, you can have the benefit of having a really unique experience while also impacting the community. Um, and then the third way I would say is, uh, you know, we're a nonprofit, right? Here's my really shameless plug. Um, you know, we rely on the generosity of other people to have that impact. And so um, we're getting ready to relaunch a program, um, which is in existence now, but we're just making it a lot cooler, which is the IndieFly Core, which is this um, monthly sustainer program um, that has some really <coughs> cool benefits to it. So, uh, you know, look out for that in the coming weeks as well. Wicked. Amazing. Um, okay, we'll put links to stuff in the show notes as well. And uh, yeah, Matt, thank you again so much for coming on. Yeah. It, was, yeah. it was awesome. Thanks for the opportunity, guys. I always feel like we just scratched the surface, but um, yeah, totally. Yeah. Really, yeah. really enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, no, ditto. I mean, we will have to do another chat sometime and get into some other stuff. But uh, yeah, thanks yeah, again. Great meeting you. Thank Matt. you, guys. Today's show is brought to you in part by Chums. You know, Chums, the company that makes those can't live without them straps that keep your sunglasses on your melon. Believe it or not, Chums has been around for 40 years, making top-notch outdoor accessories for all the guides, river rats, and weekend warriors out there. Chums got their start in Southern Utah back in 1983, when a guide on the Colorado River invented their now famous original cotton eyewear retainer. 
Chum still makes many of its products in Utah, and everything they produce is designed to help you hang on to the gear you value most. Head to chums.com to explore a wide range of products, including wallets, roll-top dry bags, waste packs, dry sacks for your phone, and of course, glasses, retainers, and all kinds of wicked styles. Every time we hit the water, Chums is right there with us in the form of amazing gear, which means we never have to worry about our sunglasses or phones sinking to the murky depths of the waters we love to fish. Head to chums.com to check out their full lineup of outdoor accessories. That's chums.com. Best fishing story ever with Joe Gugino from Costa. Best fishing story ever. Wow, that's tough. All right, well, two. I know this is going to be on the episode with Matt from IndieFly. He's a good friend, so it's going to be a two-part. One is very small fish on the fly, and we'll end with very big fish on the fly. First was at the Wind River Reservation this summer. Got to go up all the way. Uh, an hour of switchbacks driving up. Um, and we got to fish for cutthroats, which was awesome. So we were walking along the shore. Uh, got to catch my first cutthroat on the fly. A couple brookies, a couple small browns, I think, as well, if I remember correctly. Um, but it was getting pretty cold. It was in shorts, wet waiting, and uh, jumped up on a huge tree branch. Um, and was using it. Awesome roll cast, kind of sight fishing. Everyone else is kind of way back in shore, so I got probably 15, 20 feet in the water. I thought I was, you know, pretty smart, special, getting this spot right. And I was throwing the dry fly out there, got a bunch, super excited. Everyone kind of walked down and was watching me. And at one point, hooked a fish, looked down on it, and the branch snapped. And I fell face first in the water, completely dunked. Still landed the fish, sliced my leg open. Uh, not too bad, but we were all the way up there. So pretty funny, small fish, big, uh, big fish splash, so to speak. Uh, so that was fun on the Wind River. And then this past December, we got to go down to uh, Mag Bay as part of our Costa Marlin Fly uh, tagging mission with other partners, Bill Fish Foundation and uh, International Game Fish Association and Matt from Indy Fly. And so there, uh, it wasn't my first Marlin on the Fly ever, but I got into Marlin on the Fly, but more importantly, our group of 25 total people tagged, fifth, satellite tagged 15 Marlin in uh, less than 24 hours all on the fly which is pretty badass so uh it's insane <laughs> you see all the photos and videos you're like that is pretty cool and then you do it and you're like that is way cooler than i thought it could be there's stray marlin so you know anywhere from 50 to 70 pounds to over 100 pounds so i got one you know pretty small one probably right on the 80 range and then probably one close to the 100 pound plus range so you know there i mean it doesn't matter it's a billfish on the fly that you're you're not teasing up or anything like you do in sporties or chasing them in pangas so you're just like literally ca casting at them as they're destroying bait balls. Again, that's more of a funny tiny little trout story, but a big group success and amazing trout uh, or amazing fishing story to get everybody there. Um, and it was just really cool. So we have that video launching actually in the next month or so. So you guys want to check a look and we should do a podcast dive in on that story even more. All right. Welcome back. Uh, that was, uh, that was a, a good chat with Matt. Um, what an interesting organization! Like I, I, um, I read. I like. I knew. I know a little bit about Indie Fly, but I didn't know that much about it until we got to really dive deep into it. Yeah, it's so it's such a unique thing. You know? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I think it's like it sounds like they're doing a really good job of like uh, doing it for the right reasons. Yeah, you know? for sure. And like yeah. doing it the right way for the right reasons, not just because it's like you know we live in an age of accountability, but like yeah it's the right way to do it. It's the right thing to yeah. do, yeah. and I exactly. you know like that you asked a good question because my head also went to uh yeah like couldn't isn't there is there other companies in the u.s or maybe in europe or wherever that are that are 
uh, uh, exploiting communities. Totally. So I mean, people like, see easy money, right? Like, yeah. Well, bring it, like Westerners, they send you money, you come down here. Well, we're doing fishing. it with we're doing it with mines. We're doing it with forestry. We're doing totally. it with all kinds of deforestation, I should yeah. say. We're doing it with all kinds of other bad things. Why wouldn't we do it with tourism too? And yeah, you so, know. So I'm like, wow. But the fact that this exists and it's it's good is uh, it's kind of one of those like faith in humanity restored moments. You know, a yin to every yang. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Um, yin, yin. Very interesting. Got to learn more about it because it's just like yeah, like I think Matt said it right. It is very. We just scratched the surface of what you can talk about with something like that. It kind totally. of affects yeah. everything. Yeah. Um, but hopefully people listening thought that was cool. I thought that was cool. And um, that's cool. go learn more about IndieFly. Yeah. Um, see what they're up to. And if, you didn't, the, and if you didn't think it was cool, too bad. You listened to it. Yeah, over, too bad. Now. You're here. You're still listening, huh? <laughs> Get a life. What's going on with you guys? You uh, fishing at all? Um, Idis is fishing. Aren't you fishing Fish today. Yeah, How'd it go? I was blown out still. Mm, yeah. Well, it's Not, almost trout. It's almost trout. Don't I know it? My gosh. Boys, we're only uh, a few weeks away, really, days. to be honest with The you. boxes are full. Just to be honest with you, we're only a few weeks away. Wow, Come wow. on. We got the trout opener party coming up um, oh, on the 14th. Wee. That is two, well, basically two, yeah, it's exactly two weeks from now. When is Sotos, this show coming up, Mitch? The Friday, 31st. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So this is going to be okay. Yeah, this is fresh. And uh, so, yeah, two weeks today, we're doing Southern Ontario Trade Opener Social. So, if you're in Toronto Both. or the around Toronto, GTA or Ottawa get, or get the, anywhere up in the U.S., wherever, if you quit your job, come, we're doing a abandon party. Abandon your family and come there. to Sotos and rage for the trout because we are raising money for the Credit River and um, to help brook trout in the river. And um, Lord knows uh, they need it. They need it. There's obviously they're up against all kinds of problems. Um, they didn't do anything wrong. No, they didn't. But um, you know, we've got some. Uh, maybe maybe some they did. I don't know. Nefarious yeah. characters in charge of things, and uh, we won't name any names. They they rhyme with ward, and they want to build houses all over the rivers. <laughs> so, <you know>. Ward. <laughs> douchebag so yeah come on out to the party and um raise some money for the trout we're going to be doing a auction so we're actually going to auction off pretty cool stuff um actually some art we've got um some fishing gear as well like so we're doing an auction to raise money all that money goes to the river obviously money from the drinks goes to the river yeah money from everything goes to the credit so come on out and raise money and also just have fun and yeah. kind of usher in another trout season which is um something to be celebrated because cool. uh very special thing people trout fishing get ready to party um so april 14th come on out um, all the details so far.ca of course we're doing <laughs> toronto at uh third place um what else fellas the colorful know, commentary man. is not coming from yilma by the way itis what? is here for the people what? who are listening yeah you guys have similar voices <laughs> and i think that comes through that's <laughs> the cool colorful commentary is just itis not yilma <laughs> uh-huh that's exactly what yilma would say See who's saying this now? <laughs> who's who? I mean, Tell me it, something only Yilma would know. I, oh, what does Yilma, what does <laughs> Yilma know? Dead silence. Oh, um, that's so rude. <laughs> what um, What else? You guys have anything you want to say huh, to the world? Uh, no, just excited for... I just has been time flies like crazy. Okay, yeah. Thanks, Mitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you excited for, Yilma? What are you excited yeah, what are you for, excited for I'm Yilma? actually excited. What are you excited uh, for? Yeah. I'm excited to take Shelly out uh, to catch some pike. When are you guys going pike fishing? Yeah, when are you going pike fishing? Uh, we're probably going to go closer to June. <laughs> I know June. it's far from here, but... Well, yeah. when pike opens, I guess. Yeah, but exactly. I guess where, where yeah. I guess I should have said. Like, what is this pike trip you yeah, guys where are you going? coming up? We're just going to a little lake in Barrie. Um, oh. Okay. A little pike lake, eh? 
Yeah, a little Pike Lake, you know. I know the one you're uh, talking yeah. about. Yeah, and it's just fun. I took my nephew there last time, and oh, yeah, know, yeah we were supposed to go it. together. Yeah, we yeah, can still go. You bailed. <laughs> I it. You know, this isn't oh, causing the segment to you in a call you out. There, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, just, that's uh, fun. You got you're looking yeah. forward to pike fishing in four months. That's great. And, <laughs> Me uh, too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, looking forward to steelheading yeah, next fall. We, yeah. <laughs> and Demisha and I are uh, excited to get out for some trout on the credit. I'm going to be planning some trout, in, uh, trout fishing. Yeah, I'm going to be Mississauga all of April, so I'll be right by the credit. Oh, right. So, yeah. You're going to fish Mississauga. You can hang out with my pops for the month. Cool. Holy moly. Yeah. Well, we're going to have a a good time fishing trout. It's coming up. I can't wait to get out onto the Huara and uh, enjoy some of those beautiful May nights. Those are my favorite thing. When you get the kind of nice, it starts to warm up a little bit, but it's not hot. It's just the perfect spring temps where it's Mm kind of cold at Mm -hmm. night, but not. You're in a t-shirt, you know. Full moon. Full moon. Clear sky. Mm -hmm. And you start to see hendrickson's floating above and you hear crickets and you hear the bloops of fish eating dries and it's like wow this is the best thing ever i can't wait for that and then you get a bite of a red ant on your forehead you're wow. like, Jesus isn't that the best i'm looking for it sometimes oh, i look at my, my phone pictures from yeah. years prior and i'm just like <laughs> same sitting in the river drinking light beer yeah we text each other the photos like every once in a while people just text the photos it's like remember this like yeah yeah um, that's pretty or, nice oh, can't wait time. we're gonna have fun i just me and you i because we're you know can't wait we're 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 day job boys we're not freelancers oh, yeah. me and you i'm definitely we, working till five every day that's what i'm saying five hits <laughs> even four maybe some days you know we can just be like yeah you know what yeah no we're gonna go Fishing. fish the fish the weeknights like we do yeah. yeah i might go so my mom was talking to me yeah that's fun you know yeah that's cool Hop in the car, go down in the, the car. river and fish and try to hit a hatch and then Oof. Man, forget about can't it. Can't wait. So I'm excited. excited. I'm excited to swing swing some wet flies. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, you're gonna wet fly. Wet fly swing. Honestly, just everything. Everything. Yeah. Uh, Whatever needs to be done, baby. I feel ya. Well, um, everybody, uh, thank you so much for listening to another episode. Um, we really appreciate um you listening and we hope that uh you enjoyed the show and um of course you can watch us on youtube so fly fishing on youtube um but otherwise um thank you for listening and and hope you that we hope that you have some fun fishing in your near future uh that is oh, it for yeah. me mitch itis goodbye and yoma bye thanks for listening take care you can find all of our content at sofly.ca reach out via email by sending your questions or comments to info at sofly.ca Find us on Instagram at the SoFly Crew. Thanks for listening.